Blog Talk Radio. Pan-Africanist, 
and Sister Celine from Cameroon. They will be giving their perspectives on our theme tonight, understanding Africa, its reality, and issues. But before we speak to our theme tonight, recently yesterday on the 29th of June, we had a birthday or Earth Day in honor of our beloved brother, Kwame Ture. You would like to acknowledge his birthday, and um, we'd like to have our panelists and I guess maybe say a few words in terms of how they remember the legacy of Brother Kwame Ture as we, as we honor and recognize his birthday, which was yesterday, June the 29th. He was born June the 29th, 1941, and made a transition on November 15, 1998. So let's just give our, our respects to a great freedom fighter and pan-Africanist, our beloved brother, Kwame Ture. And the way we're going to do this, like always, the way we get started with our party is with our food and panelists. We're going to pray to be here first. Brother Anthony, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. From Brother Anthony, we will introduce Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on Move, Brother Jabari. Thank you, Professor Barney, resident researcher. It's beautiful. It's an honor and privilege to be part of this program with my fellow panelists and our invited guests. Peace, everybody. Okay, Father Brother Zapari, we're bringing Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the World. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamaka Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and I'm all about institution buildings. In reference to the late, the great Kwame Toure, I just like to extend, you know, um, the uh, kind of uh, gifts that he gave to humanity, his willingness to sacrifice for the good of humanity. Uh, speaks violence in terms of the kind of person he was, and his his, his level of, um, uh, of of candor and his level of, you know, uh, understanding the situation, um, you know, squarely uh, that we find ourselves confronted with was very unique indeed. So we're going to miss Brother Kwame, and he's been gone for a while. Uh, but his, his ideas live on forever, and uh, I just wanted to convey, you know, my uh, sentiments toward this great individual. And next for Brother Aki, you bring Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the moment. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class in my high school years, 1968. I called Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Okay, and our panelists for today, we will get into, and I'd like to introduce briefly Dr. Malofi Asante. Uh, we'd like to welcome you, my brother, to the program. And your introduction to our audience on who you are and whatever message you'd like to give 
as you remember our late brother, Kwame Ture. Uh, brother African, thank you very much. My name is Molefe Kete Asante, and I'm the international organizer of Afrocentricity International. And Brother Kwame Torre was a good friend of mine. In fact, uh, one of the more memorable times was when we supposedly had a debate at the University of Cincinnati that was called uh, the debate of the decade. It was about Afrocentricity and socialism. Uh, I'm a strong believer in the unity of Africa and in the unification of Africa on two principles. The first one is reverence for the African ancestors. And the second one is that we have to uh, have the same consciousness. We have to be on the same page. And right now we have brothers and sisters who, are, who believe that Islam is the example uh, for us. And we have brothers and sisters who believe that socialism is the example for us. And some people believe that Marxism is the example for us. But until African people believe in themselves and assert their own independent ideology based on the historical narratives of Africa, we will never be able to create the unity that we seek. And that was the point that was made during the debate with Kwame Touré, my friend. And we ended up, of course, very close friends. And we had known each other uh, earlier when I was working with SNCC. Uh, at the UCLA chapter. Okay, thank you, young brother. Next, we bring in one of the other panelists for tonight to speak on his day's theme, Brother Bamboshi, who is a political organizer and pan africanist Brother Bamboshi, welcome to Africa on the Move. And anything you'd like to say as it to Brother Kwame Tree's birthday. Yeah, thank you very much, my brother, and greetings to you illustrious panel and guests. I would just like to say that I am also a member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I am a co-chair of the National Network on Cuba, and I am on the board of directors of the Alliance for Global Justice. But thankfully tonight, I'm not here to represent or to speak for any of them. I am also honored to be here on this occasion because of Kwame's birthday yesterday. I was Kwame Ture roommate in Washington, D.C. for probably a good five to six years. So I know a little about Kwame Ture. Thank you, Brother Bamboshi. And one of the other, other political panelists is we have with our Brother Tantama. Brother Tantama, welcome to Africa. Tanudama. 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 The great king of Nubia. Right. Tanudama. All right. How are you doing, my brother? Uh, introduce yourself and anything you'd like to say as regard to the memory of our Brother Kwame Ture. Is he here? Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. All right. Uh, my name is Tanut Amun Girai. I'm a Sudanese-American and African-American. And uh, I came last, uh, like, 
20 years ago to United States. I'm a human rights activist and uh, I'm a community organizer mm. for the for the people of the state of Nubia. Uh, I I I am a Nubian. I grew up in the state of Nubia in Sudan. I speak Nubian, Nubian uh, the largest Nubian language and uh, I'm a Afrocentrist. We thank you, brother, and we're honored to have you on today's program. Well, panelists, um, before we go forward, I think I'd like to go back maybe to Anthony, Jabari, and Brother Moses. Any shout-out you'd like to make in honor of Brother Therese's birthday? Anthony. Yes, I would. Um my uh my memory of uh of uh, of uh, Kwame Ture is uh his, his diligence, humility and consistency and how hard he worked in order to uh uh spread the ideological concepts related to Nkrumahism, Tureism and uh how he how he worked he dedicated his 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 adult life to organizing our people in order to achieve our, our freedom, and uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, he didn't live to see the fruit of his labor, but he worked very hard and he was very consistent, and uh, those are the uh, things I remember most regarding Brother Kwame. Okay, next school. Brother Zibari, any thoughts on Brother Kwame Ture? The legacy, while so much you can say about the legacy he left, but I'll simply say that he showed the importance of why organization is key. If you want to achieve any aims, it's important to be with those who are like men to have organization for protection. It's also the most effective way to... Um, get your message out in terms of a better tomorrow being possible. And he did that on behalf of his people um, for a very long time, and he's to be commended for that piece. And Brother Moses, your thoughts on Brother Squamish Terrain? Well, certainly, uh, Brother Squamish Terrain was, was one of the most influential, if not the father of the black consciousness movement, the modern day consciousness a black black power and uh and uh I think he I think he had an influence on Steve Biku uh in Africa, South Africa and uh I, I, uh his his legacy, you know, his stand against the Vietnam War, his stand against the Zionist project, all these things uh uh was proved that he was in the vanguard of the black political consciousness movement. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, all our panelists and guests for sharing their perspectives and giving their respect to Brother Teray and his birthday. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to make the transition to the theme today, which is Understand Africa, its reality and issues. As you know that when you look at Africa today, we understand that Africa has had a great impact on the world and world humanity. Africa has a history, one of the oldest or the oldest history among all the continents. 
But yet today, Africa is very little understood, even by many of his children. And what we want to do today is get a perspective on trying to get a better understanding of Africa, its reality issues. And to do that, we'll be our panelists. They'll be speaking on this theme, and we'd like to encourage you to join in if you listen to the program by calling 323-679-0841. Later on in the program, we'll open up for questions and comments to our, to our guest today. And starting off, for the first six or seven minutes, we allow each particular, each particular panelist to give their opening statement on this theme as it relates to understanding Africa, its reality issues. And first, we will start out with Brother Asante. We'll let you start first. Thank you very much, sir. I'm very, very happy to be on the program, Brother Africa. And let me just say this, that um, Africa is uh, is not just the home of Homo sapiens. Uh, it is, of course, the very core of human civilization. Uh, there would be no civilization if Africans had not laid the very foundation for, for geometry and mathematics and for architecture and philosophy and politics and law. So we, we, we recognize Africa as the mother uh, of the earth in many ways, not just in terms of homo sapiens, but also in terms of institutions. However, Africa is in crisis today. Uh, the continent of 2 billion people is in crisis because Africa has not expressed its own individual ideological position. Almost every other continent has an ideological position. Almost all the major countries have ideological positions. But Africa uh, has confusion, and the confusion has existed since the period of the missionaries, the colonization of Africa, the enslavement of African people, and the bringing into Africa uh, the intrusion of what I call foreign ideologists that have confused the people so that people, some people think that Christianity is their answer. Some think that Islam is their answer. Some think that Marxism is their answer. And they have never interrogated their own history, which is the most fundamental and profound history of any people in the world. And so once we do that, once we began to interrogate our own history, Africa would be in a different place. So I know that there are crises. I lived in Africa. I lived in Zimbabwe. Uh, I was the person who was responsible for training the first group of uh, journalists uh, after the second Chimaranga uh, at the Zimbabwe Institute of Mass Communication. So I, 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 and I go to Africa three or four times a year, and I know that we're in crisis. The Chinese are coming. The Chinese are already there. And they have Chinatowns in some of the cities. Uh, the city of Douala in Cameroon has its own Chinatown. Uh, they're they're uh, Chinese farmers who are taking over large uh, acreages in uh, many parts of Africa. And they have indebted the African nations. Uh, even South Africa uh, is, is indebted by billions of dollars to China. Uh, and I say even South Africa because we could perhaps understand some of the poor countries like Congo, which is a very rich country in terms of minerals, but because of the confusion in the government, it is a, it's a weak institutional structure. 
So Africa's problem is fundamentally a problem of the lack of African consciousness. And that's where the Afrocentrists have made their biggest point. The Afrocentrists have said, why don't we as African people, first of all, use our own concepts, our own ideas? Why don't we promote and assert Africa in every reality, whether it's economic or religious, whether it is in social or cultural activities, promote an African idea. And since we haven't done that, we will still be in turmoil on the continent. And uh, there are many things I could say, but I'll, I'll leave sometimes certainly for other people. Go right ahead. Uh, thank you, Brother Fante. Next, Brother Belboshi, your opening remarks on this thing. I understand Africa, Israel, issues. Yeah, I, I agree. The African reality is extremely complex. I think that today, because we lack some ideological clarity and because we lack a common ideology, uh, we have a lot of confusion. But even more than confusion, we have neocolonialism. And neocolonialism is a direct result of an attempt to recolonize Africa by the old colonial powers plus today by the new colonial power, the USA. I think that it is true that in Africa we have many different national groups roaming around, of course, seeking to influence Africa in their own interests. But even more than that, there are humpteen African leaders, many African leaders, that they're able to influence because these leaders are neo-colonial. They're the puppets that colonialism put in place when they removed themselves who will run our countries for the colonialists. So here we see that colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, has found a new source of seizing power in Africa, the neocolonial agents that are part and parcel of our people and our blood. And, you know, Kwame Ture used to always say that for us as, as a people, we have three struggles. One, we have a struggle against the external forces amongst us. Those forces of capitalism, imperialism, neocolonialism, uh, neoliberalism, you name it. Secondly, we have a struggle against our internal enemy, the neocolonial agents themselves. But the most important struggle we have today is a struggle amongst the backward ideas that we as individual Africans hold within our head. So today I am extremely for the struggle of ideas, and I'm extremely for us uniting to produce a continental unity. I am for us as a people 
beginning to understand that our solutions is locked into us being able to clearly identify who our enemy is and clearly identify what we must struggle for. We must struggle for Pan-Africanism. We must struggle for Pan-Africanism. We must struggle for the total liberation and unification of Africa under an all-African socialist government. Any other struggle is secondary. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Bamboji. Next, we go to our Brother Tenu Thomas. We'll let you state your opening position on the thing, understanding Africa, its reality and issues. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, brother, and uh, thank you for Radio Africa. And uh, I will uh, speak, specifically, I will speak about my experience in Sudan. What uh, in my uh, life, what I experienced, and uh, my people, what they are experiencing. Uh, uh, I believe Africa only will develop by African ideas by African experience, not by uh, colonial ideas, uh, like European ideas or Arab ideas. Uh, in, in, in Africa, in Sudan, I, I do understand Sudan is the heart of Africa. The Nile Valley civilization is the African civilization. And it's accumulation of African experience. All African nations experience accumulated on the Nile Valley and comes out the uh, uh, Nile Valley civilization, Nubian civilization and Egyptian Egypt civilization. In the beginning, uh, I will talk about Sudan, the word Sudan. The, the word Sudan itself is a trouble. The word Sudan is an Arabic word, means land of blood. But they don't mean land of blood. They mean what goes behind it, the political meaning. The political meaning, land of slaves. Land is still owned by slaves. Land not yet taken from slaves. And it's the right time now for Arabia. They are taking the land of slaves, which is Sudan. We've been, we've been ruled since we get independent from Britain in 1956. We've been ruled by the Arabic Islamic ideology. And they turn the Sudan as the Arab country and they join the, the people who, the Sudanese who ruled the Sudan after independence, they join the Arab League and they accept the name Sudan, which Sudan is not our name. We people of Sudan today in the past, we don't call ourselves Sudan. We call ourselves Nubia or Nubian, Kingdom of Nubia. We believe Sudan is a label label put on us by our master, by Arabia. Since, since 
Arab invade kingdom of Nubia. 652 AD, they target one thing in, in Africa, in Sudan. They target the language, language of the people, the Sudanese, the Nubians. And the name and the faith, the religion. They stripped the whole Sudan from its name, Nubia, and they call it Sudan. And they gave the people themselves, they removed them from their African names and they gave them Arabic names. And then finally they attacked the language, African language, calling it. Uh, 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 sub-language or like inferior language is not a, a dialect it's a dialect or something like that it's an inferior it's not a super so we experiencing this humiliation and oppression and enslavement and colonization, colonization, Arabian colonization and European colonization. We face all this. And then we enter the stage of self-hating. We start hating ourselves. We start working for Arab ideology or the ideology of Arabia. Instead of working for our ideas, African ideas, we start, we join the Arabs and we start working, advancing the Arab idea. How this happened? It happened, Arabs, when they conquered East Africa, they said in their philosophy that God, God of Arab Allah, don't understand African language. And you cannot understand the teaching of Quran in, in Arabic la- in African language, so we have to speak Arabic language. But we know to, we all know language is a container of the culture. If somebody strips you out of your language, he's attacking your culture. So this is what happened to us. That's why you see Sudanese. Even though we are black and we call land of blood, internally we are not black. We are Arab. We speak Arabic. We wear Arabic name, and we don't question these uh, things because Arab they they put or they carved the concept. Uh, they they carved the methods of reality in the concept of concept of Arabia and they advance it through the vehicle of Islam. So it captured all black. We trapped inside the Arabian ideology. We are completely trapped. Take any black Muslim in Africa. He don't know anything except history of Arabia, history of uh, Prophet Muhammad and his companions. And Arabic language is the holy language, and African language is the inferior language. This is all blacks who carry Arab names, they believe on that. Personal, before I leave the, the panel, personal experience. When I was a child, I went to school, first grade. I've been tortured for three months continuously. 
and millions of Sudanese like me being tortured because we don't we don't use to speak Arabic. We speak our own language. I came to this life speaking Nubian, Nubian language, but when we went to school, it was a policy of state to speak Arabic and punishing students who speak their mother tongue. I used to get punishment every morning in the assembly in front of 250 students or 300 students. Only the, uh, by giving me five lashes in front of the 300 students, it's not only me, thousands of students in my school who speak Nubian. And then by this process, we became Arabized. Recently, we learn Arabic, we start speaking Arabic, and we completely forget about our identity and our culture. Because when you stop, when you drop your language, you drop your culture. And on top of that, the state, the state of Sudan since 1956, they deny us to, to teach African languages. Only the languages uh, is allowed to teach in Sudan, colonial languages, Arabic language, and English language. But African languages, African languages who built the civilization and who, who wrote on the, on, the, on, the, on the tomb of our ancestors, those languages, it is not allowed to be learned or to teach at the school. So Africa, I see Africa is confused. We in Africa, people in the, in, in, the, in the continent, we are confused. We are confused in both sides. The black African in Africa who became Christian, they carry European name. The black who became uh, Muslim, they carry Arab name. So it's a confusion there. And the education in, in, in Africa, there is nothing called African education. Education is either European method or Arabic method. So which Africa are we talking about? It's just the black people living in the continent. But the black people living in the continent of Africa, they live by the ideology of colonizers, not by their own methods, by their own ideas. That takes us all this take us to position what we are facing in Sudan now. Sudan, we ruled for 30 years by Muslim Brotherhood. It's an ultra-Arab nationalism using the vehicle of Islam as a cover. They destroy every element of Africa in Sudan in the last 30 years. And now, the, the Arabia, what we call uh, in the United States our friends, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, friend of Egypt, Republic, Arab Republic of Egypt, friend of United States. They are dismantling Sudan now. Why? Because the Pan-African ideas, the consciousness ideas start showing in Sudan after we came to the United States and we put our hands on the books of African-American scholars like Chancellor Williams, 
like George James, like Professor uh, Mulefa Sante, like Ama Mazama, and a lot of uh, African Americans. After we study with these black scholars, we study their work, we start doing a lot of, we, we, we did a lot of work on the media to re-educate our youth. And the youth, they grabbed this idea. And this, uh, this alarming radio, it's very dangerous. They, they, they scare Sudan with the spin out of Arabia. And that's the truth. That is what we are working for, to liberate our people, mental liberation from the Arab ideology and from all colonial ideology. Now, Saudi Arabia and Egypt and United Arab Emirates, they collect all Arabized blacks from West Africa, from uh, Mali, from Niger, from uh, Nigeria, from uh, Chad. They collect all Arabized, black Arabized, and they give them weapons for billions of dollars. They bought the weapon in Sudan to Arabize black to hold the land. And if you remember when I started, I said Sudan have name, name, land of black, but politically means land of slaves. The land is still owned by slaves. The land not yet taken by, from the slaves. Now they are taking the land from us. Okay, my brother, can you... Black. Up to closing of your opening remarks, keep another minute, please. Sorry, what did you say, brother? I didn't hear you. Yes, can you come to a closing? You have a chance to talk about other issues, but can you come okay. to a closing? Yes. If I'm not, be yes. respectful to so, your other guests. Okay. All right. All right. This is uh, about a uh, uh, talk about confusion of Africans. In Africa, there is a big confusion in Africa, and we have to discuss this. And the destruction of Africa from Arabia and the enslavement of Africa by Arabia, this is not discussed yet in the United States or anywhere else. We, we are opening this page. Who starts enslaving a black man in the first place? And who starts destroying African culture in the first place? And thank you, I will say. Thank you, my brother. Now, to my panelists, what I would like to do right now, because we understand that the subject that we are taking on tonight is a very complex and have a long, long history of struggle. What we would like to do maybe is to give people some kind of pretext of where to get started as it relates to trying to travel down the road and finding the truth as it relates to Africa and African realities and its issues with people. Brother Asante, when we talk about Africa, we recognize Africa is a continent that's been in existence for hundreds and thousands of years, and it had its own history of development and creativity. One of the issues today that has been raised today and throughout time being has been around the question of, among our people, what is the African? Based upon your understanding of the history of Africa, what would be the how you best address this question of what is the African? How do we identify ourselves? What is the what is the conditions that are, that you need to understand that will give someone an understanding of their proper identity as being an African, based upon that history and that struggle, from your perspective? 
in my in, in my perspective, brother. Uh, uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Can you hear me? Yes, right. we can. In my all right, thank you. In, in my perspective, an African uh, is number one, a person who is uh, originates in, in the black continent, the black continent of Africa. You have to have origin origins in the black continent of Africa, and that is within historical times because we all know that uh, seventy before seventy thousand years ago, everybody in the world was black. So we know that there was migration out of Africa. But when I'm saying historical time, within the time of the written history, we know that Africa has a distinct character. So a person is an African. You're born on the continent of Africa, or you're a descendant of people born on the continent of Africa within historical time, and you claim your Africanity, then you are an African. Anybody else is an invader of Africa, are the son or the daughter of an invader of of Africa. That's that's according to John Henry Clark. So African would refer to people who are born on the continent, who have a history, an identity that goes thousands of years back on the continent of Africa. That's why Brother uh, Tanudamon was correct when he was talking about the fact that the Arabs came to Africa in 600 and 39 A.D., they came under the leadership of General L. Oz at the invitation of African black people to help them throw off the Romans. And when they came, they stayed. And not only did they stay, but they, they killed and slaughtered many African people and then imposed their own culture on the African continent. And this is this is a big struggle. That's the struggle you have in Nigeria today. That's the struggle you have in Mali. That's the struggle you have in Niger. That's the struggle that's been lost in Chad. That's the struggle that's going on in Sudan right now. This is the struggle of civilization, and it's a very, very big uh, struggle. So uh, to be African, uh, you have to also recognize the African diaspora because I always tell people, those of us born in uh, uh, America or in the Caribbean uh, of African descent, we are African too. Uh, we, we have uh, our own uh, allegiance and our own lineage, our genealogy that goes back to the continent of Africa. And we love Africa. We're committed to the African project. We're not committed to the European project or the Islamic project or Arab project. We're committed to the African project. And that's the difference sometimes. And I'm writing a book on this now, on black Marxism, because I think there's a whole different reality that comes with the Marxists who believe that our example is the Russian Revolution. That's not our example. Our example goes back longer than that and further than that. It is being in resistance to those people who want to dominate Africans through all concepts, ideologies, religion, spirituality, and economics. So we have a big struggle ahead of us, and I really believe that we're going to win this battle. We have to win this battle for our children. And thank you, my brother, Brother Bamboshi, for your understanding, your history, and your struggle. Um, 
I think we just lost our brother Bamboshi. Let me see if we can get him back. No, I'm yes, sure we got Bamboshi. Brother Bamboshi, yep. when we look at this whole question of what is African, understanding the, your understanding your history, learning from our forefathers who have many times addressed this question, how would you tell someone how to create some kind of process where they begin to travel down the road of finding out what is this, 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 this issue of identity, how do one arise at one's identity as being an African? What would you say to them? Well, first of all, I have a different perspective. I think that when you look at Africa, there are people who migrated out of Africa. And those people, over a period of time, did not change from becoming, from being African because of environment and because of weather, because you could see that today. If you move and live in the North Pole, Two generations, ten generations, a hundred generations from now, living in the North Pole will not change you from being an African. However, while I unfortunately probably have to prepare the people on your panel to accept the fact that there are people who are non-religious, like myself, who do not believe this biblical story about one man being the origin of all of us and people like myself who believe that the conditions that create the emergence of man in Africa when it did could also have existed in other places, other continents at a later date thus creating the conditions for man to emerge in those places also. I don't think that different races all morphed from Africa and became something else because they left Africa and went somewhere else. There is Africa and traces of Africans in every continent historically. However, I, I don't believe this one man creating everybody else story. That's one. Secondly, I am not clear on exactly if our brother Tantaman is saying that if you are Islamic, then you are Arab, or if you speak Arabic, then you are Arab, because obviously there's Africans all over the world that speak Arabic, just like if that's the case, then... Africans who speak English would be British all over the world, or Africans who speak French. So while this might be a small indication of some of these contradictions, I think that we have to look at the overall con conditions, the overall contradictions, and we will see that the countries that impose colonialism on Africa are the countries who got rich off of Africa, as documented in the book by Brother Walter Rodney called How Europe Wanted to Develop Africa. Those countries today and the position they're in is directly related to the wealth 
that they were able to steal from Africa, and not just the wealth, but Africa's labor, which they stole and brought here to this hemisphere. And today, that labor exists not just in the U.S., but throughout the hemisphere. So in looking at all of this, our primary enemy today is those folks who are still controlling us. And while we should be on guard and cautious about who may become our enemy in the future, we need to concentrate on attacking our primary enemy today, which is imperialism and neocolonialism, and specifically U.S. imperialism. Okay. My brother, Tanu Tumman, in terms of your perspective, how you define what is an African? Yes. Yes, brother. Okay. I just want to clear something. I didn't say who speaks Arabic is the Arab. If there is an African man who speaks Arabic, he's Arab. I never say this. But Arab says this. The Arabs say who speaks Arabic is become Arabized. And that is creating a big problem in Africa. Because the African who became Muslim and carry Arab name and speaking Arabic, they are totally Arabized, mentally Arabized. And they became very destructive to any African element in their history, in their culture. If you see what happened in, in Mali, in Tombuktu, Tombuktu is an Islamic city, but it's an African version. It's, 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 a, it's a Sufism. It is not Wahhabism like in, in Gulf, uh, in, 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 in Saudi Arabia. So they destroy Sufi Islamic because it carry African seeds. So I don't, I, 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 I didn't say that. My brother, the speaker, says, I said the uh, person who speaks Arabic, who, he, he, he became uh, his Arab man, or if you speak English, you are. I am totally aware of that. I am very conscious about that. And I stand with you in that position. A person who speaks language does not belong to the, the origin of the language. But this, this point destroying Africa. Language point is a major problem. Black Arab, black uh, uh, Muslims in Africa, they completely Arabize and they anti-African methods, African ideas, Afri- completely against African uh, methods. This, this is a problem. We're talking about the confused Africans. And we are all confused in the continent because we trapped in the ideology of colonialism. Look at the Dr. Uh, Al-Mazrui. Dr. Mazrui is a crossbreed. His mom is a, a, a Kenyan from Kenya. His father from Yemen. I heard Dr. Mazrui here in the United States on the TV, public TV, talking he was criticizing a European colonizer 
and how he was talking about Walter's book, how the, Afri how the, how the Europeans destruct Africa. But when he comes to Arabia, he shy away and he says, Arabs came to Africa to civilize, to civilize Africans. So, Arabized black is a major problem for Africa. And they are against Africans. And this is happening today while we are talking, it's happening in Sudan. The Arab Gulf country, Arab League, they, they collect all Arabized black from West Africa all the way to Chad. And they train them in Saudi Arabia military and they give them hell of weapons and they capture Sudan now to change Sudan to Arab Republic, completely Arabizing Sudan, and denying any uh, belonging to Africa. But my brother, the speaker, before, before I stop, I will tell you thing. I'm very conscious of our position. Sudan, the trouble Sudan today, Sudan is not a window to Africa. Sudan is not a door to Africa so the, the, the cameras from outside, they can come to Sudan and, and, and go to uh, Africa. Sudan is not corridor to Africa. Sudan is the heart of Africa. It's Africa itself because it carries, in, 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 in archaeological sites, it carries the African experience, African philosophy, African ideas. And the struggle in Africa is the identity struggle. All others is confusing us. All the methods of struggle comes from outside, from Europe, from Arabia, is confusing us. The struggle in Africa is about living as an African, respecting our culture, our language, our heritage, not colonial language, not colonial heritage. This is my position uh, to my brother, so uh, I clear uh, my position. Thank you very much. Thank you. At this point in time, you listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to continue the discussion, understand Africa, its realities and issues. We're going to pause for this call, so when we come back, we can talk about this whole question of the impact of the Berlin Conference from 1884-85 how they even has impact the present-day reality, and how do we move forward? We're going to discuss those issues and more, and we're going to invite you, the listening audience, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 if you have any comments and views. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Thank you. 
we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Yes, we're stolen from Africa and brought to America. Fighting upon our rival, we still fight for our survival. When will this stop? When will this stop? We are discussing the theme tonight. And it's in Africa, its reality and issues. Right now, we would like to raise this question, and then we'll go to our phone lines. We ask you, the listening audience, any comments or questions you may have, please hit 1. We acknowledge your last four numbers. You will dial in at 323-679-0841. You know, when we look at Africa today, as we alluded earlier in this program, we talk about the confusion. There's a lot of confusion around ideals. Now, there are many ideals that are going on within the continent that's creating this confusion. I'd like to ask our panelists, when it comes to this question of looking at the reality of the balkanization of Africa today, and we're talking about the battle ideals, we're talking about the importance of philosophy, how do we create a philosophy or create an ideal that will be a unifying force for all of the continent of Africa? i start with you, Brother Belboshi. Talk about what is the value and importance of an ideology and philosophy, and how do we create one that will fit the needs and interests of Africa or African people, from your perspective? Uh, thank you, my brother. I, I don't think that ideology falls from the sky, and I think that if we aren't conscious of the ideology we have today, or the ideology that we're operating under is only because we're operating under the enemy's ideology. So, therefore, to be conscious does mean to be operating under an ideology that comes from within us. And that's where our ideology must come from, within us. Kwame Nkrumah, Sekou Toure, Julius Nyeri, you name it, a number of leaders on the African continent produced an abundance of literature that talked about how we can come together, how we can unite, how we can expel our enemies from Africa, and how we can unite Africa as one. And we have to look at all of these. But not only must we look at all of these, we must look at others. You know, Kwame Ture used to always say that most of the folks in America is against Marxism. They're against Marxism and socialism. Yet, if you ask them, any of them, what is Marxism or what is socialism, they cannot give you a answer that's anywhere close to... Uh, intelligent, even if not necessarily correct. So, therefore, you have a necessity amongst our people to bring our awareness, our consciousness to a new level, to a higher level. And again, this does not happen out of osmosis. It does not happen, it does not fall from the sky. It's a effort that is put into creating this awareness, this consciousness. And this effort is something that we have to do concretely. It's something that we have to do. It's not something that 
our enemy will do for us. So here again, it behooves us to understand our history, to understand the history of our enemy and our oppression, and to specifically understand where we are and must go, where we must go. So I'm not sure if I am making that clear, but it behooves us to, one, study, two, study some more, three, study some more and some more. And I must thank Brother Mofali because he has written so many books on these and other topics that there is aspects of his books that we could grasp from, that we can learn from. But we must study, and we must study critically. Thank you. May we go to our brother, Brother Tanutoma. What is your position of how to arrive at an ideology that be or a philosophy that would be suitable where all African and African people can use toward our liberation? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, our our enemy is uh, is our our way of thinking. Our mind is set by the colonials. Uh, Arab colonials and then European colonials, they set our mind. Mental liberation here, it comes first to rebuild our philosophy, our culture. It needs more, more studying uh, 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 in special, uh, specialized area, need more research and studying African culture, the way we live in Africa the way we farm, the way we do social activity like wedding, the way we do uh, all the social uh, activities is completely different than the other cultures. We have to study these and bring the values, uh, values of the, our methods or uh, our uh, paradigm. But other ideologies, Falling to the colonial ideology, it put us in trouble. And I have a big uh, disagreement with uh, a, a good friend of mine from Nubia. They are talking about class destruction and this and that, but this is not reality in, in, in my country. In my country where I come from, Sudan, it's... The struggle is the identity struggle. It's a cultural struggle. It is not a class struggle. Maybe in Europe there was a class struggle in in Western culture, but in where I come from, the struggle is identity struggle. And we have to build our philosophy, reading, studying our uh, uh, African people, the way of living, the way of uh, doing all the activities. I grew up as a child, I grew up in a farm. My dad was a farmer. I know how all the Sudan or more, all the African house farm. Each village helped other village. 
it's a collective society, collective uh, uh, method. We have to write about this. We have to study this. We don't have to rely on the colonial to give us a method. We have our own, we, we have the method. We have to develop it only. We have to recall it, do more studies, and Sheikh Antadiop, late Sheikh Antadiop says, to, to write African history, it is not enough just to read, uh, it's not enough only the historian or archaeologist or uh, it's, it, you have to study African, Sheikh Antadiop says this, you have to study African languages. The philosophy is deep rooted in our languages. If you don't study the language, you don't know how Africa builds civilization. All African languages in Nigeria, in Ethiopia, in Sudan, in Zimbabwe, in all African languages, we have to study to come out with idea, with the method, methodology. This is what I believe. Thank you. And thank you, my brother. We now have our lines open. Uh, hit one, and we acknowledge the last four numbers. Right now, we're going to do Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, um, understand Africa, it's reality and issues. Your question or comments? Yes, Brother Anthony. Yes. Uh, uh, yes, and my comment is uh, directed to both uh, our brothers, uh, Bamboshi and uh, Tanunaman. Uh, my, uh, Kwame Nkrumah and uh, Secretary uh, did uh, did make an attempt to develop an ideology for the African Revolution. That uh, ideology referred to as Nkrumahism, Tereism, uh, because uh, it comes from the speeches, words, and practices of those two political leaders, and uh, they based it they based it on the research they did. On uh, on African history and current African society, at, at you know during their time, and uh, and, uh, and 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 a couple of key tenets of that. One was that political unification was necessary for Africa's liberation, and another is the fact that uh, that Africa. Had been changed by uh, the Arab Islamic influence and the Euro Christian influence. What uh, What are your views on that in terms of trying to synthesize that in order to come up with uh, the correct ideology for the African Revolution? Okay, we'll start with Brother Bamboshi first. Okay, Brother Bamboshi. Well, I, I I agree with Anthony that Africa, in its current stage, has been influenced by Islam and by Euro Christian Christianity. I think that. Uh, obviously, Africa today and in the past has also been influenced by 
traditional African religion. And that Nkuma put it correctly when he says that there must be a synthesis of pulling the positive aspects of these three religions from the African perspective to ensure that it works to free us as a people. And I'll give you a couple of examples. <coughs> One, uh, obviously, Dr. King, who, as a Christian minister, who, as you know, Christianity was one of the weapons used by European colonialism against Africans and against Native Americans throughout the hemisphere. <coughs> Dr. King was able to take the positive aspects of Christianity, the fact that our people were in the Christian church in the U.S., and use that to mobilize us, to bring us out of the church, to fight against our person and for liberation. So that was a example of using Christianity positively. And I'm sure that there's other examples. Unfortunately, I would agree with our brother from Sudan that the question of identity is a serious question, not just in Sudan, but in East Africa, where I've ran into people who were Ethiopians who say that they're not part of Africa, but an entity that's entirely separate and different from Africa. I've heard of brothers from the South Sudan who traveled to New York because they heard there was a lot of Africans like the Africans in the Sudan in New York that they got to New York they went to 125th and Malcolm X they looked around they turned around and got back on the plane and went back to the Sudan told the folks in the Sudan that they went to New York and all they saw was Arabs so here we have you know, all of this confusion surrounding our identity. The fact is that we're Africans. We're Africans no matter where we are born and no matter where we exist in the world today. And this is part of the struggle of ideas that we must wage. And I thank our brother because I think that part of what he's saying is that they are engaging in the struggle, especially amongst those Africans in East Africa who thinks that they are Arabs because they speak Arabic or because they're Islamic. But that struggle must also be waged against our brothers in West Africa who think they're French because they speak French or because of the influence that France has had on them or those who speak English and think that there's something else other than Africans because of that. And even here in the United States, it's clear that a number of people in the United States 
has not really seriously challenged this question of identity. But Malcolm was clear. Malcolm said that if a cat has kittens in an oven, that does not make those kittens or those babies kittens. Instead, they're what they are, Africans. And again, we we have the struggle that we must wage. It is part of the ideological struggle that we're waging. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Van Bush. Was it Tatumat? Your response to the question? Yeah, yes, brother. What, what, what was the question? Sorry, I, I just I missed that. Brother Anthony, repeat, repeat your question again, Brother Anthony. Certainly. Um, my question was, um, in Kwame Nkrumah and, uh, and Ahmed Secretary tried to, uh, to come up with an ideology for the African Revolution, that was the synthesis of the uh, 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 of uh, traditional African society and the Euro-Christian and Arab-Islamic influences on African society, uh, and uh, and uh, what what is your view in terms of the importance of uh, political unification uh, in order in, in order to bring about the liberation and freedom of Africa. Yes, yes, brother. Thank you, thank you. Yes, we we can start on on all these ideas of uh, our great uh, leaders like Kwame Nkrumah, Tsori, and all the other. Uh, Kenyatta and all the other uh, great African leaders. Yes, we can build on the, on on those ideas. And I, I I again would repeat the culture, African culture, African philosophy is is rooted and seeded in the African language. Without studying African language, we will not. We will not be able to to build our center, our complete idea, our complete philosophy. Because I'm saying this because I I was really uh, uh, in a stage of uh, uh, not shock, but. Uh, I was wondering one day in 2007 in Virginia Commonwealth uh, VCC, I was speaking without knowing uh, I am speaking with a great African-American leader. They were speaking in the same panel in the same day. Those was uh, Dr. Uh, great brother, Dr. Mulefe Asante and Dr. Uh, uh, the I forget his name. He's a, he, he's a priest. He was a priest of Barack Obama. Help me on uh, his name. 
Dr. Uh... Anyway, and that day, I, I learned a lot of things from uh, two lectures about the idea, how, how we can stick to our idea and our experience. And they talked about Sheikh and Tadiyot. They talked about uh, the ideas about Sheikh and Tadiyot. Sheikh and Tadiyot, he told us the African history, African philosophy is rooted deep in the language. And when I read for Sheikh and Tadiyot and his uh, explaining Nubin, the language I speak, I came to this life to uh, learn only Nubin from my mother. When I see Dr. Sheikh and Sadiob uh, explaining Nubin language and he's from Senegal, I said, wow, wow. This is exactly the history. He's putting the philosophy. He's building African philosophy. African philosophy, African method, we should not follow colonial methods that will take us to different paths. We have to study. We have to spend time to study our languages, our scholars, African-American scholars. They have to go Africa and live in Africa, not in just in a campus four years. No, live in the villages with the people and study the language and will come out with with our philosophy, we can build our center, or if you say ideology, but I will say paradigm. Okay, let's move to Brother Haki. Your question comment, please. Yeah, well, we, we, discussed, we covered a lot tonight, and it's been a very uh, interesting discussion, but one of the things I think to Brother Boshi, I think, you know, no question about it that uh, imperialism is a primary contradiction, and certainly we have to overcome that. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't negate the fact that we have to understand the players in terms of the suppression that we're confronted with. And also, we talk about classism because it's important in terms of understanding, you know, imperialism. Well, we also have to understand in terms of the geopolitical moves of, uh, of Arabs, particularly when we talk about the destabilization of Africa in terms of, you know, Arab nations, you know, subsidizing you know, Arabs in African states for the sole purpose in terms of taking over, taking control in hopes that somehow would result in, you know, uh, increase in Muslim population in African states. So we got to be concerned about the fundamental destabilization that uh, the Europe, I mean, these, these Arabs pose in terms of their policy. But one of the things I want to ask Brother Abbas Sudan is question in terms of um, racism in Arab literature. I think this is important that we, we underscore this. Because one of the things in terms of Dearborn, Dearborn Michigan, there is somewhat of a problem in terms of the antagonism that exists between, quote-unquote, Arabs, you know, in Dearborn, Michigan, and the African community. And it seems to be a problem. But this question in terms of racism in Arab literature is, is very, very interesting. I'm going to ask you if you've read these, these articles. Uh, there is an article by this individual by the name of Riahin out of Tunisia called Gorilla and the Scalpel. There's one out of Yemen by Ali Makwi, uh, entitled Black Taste, Black Smell. Uh, out of Jordan, there's an individual by the name of Smahi, Smaha Faris, uh, Pistachio Orbed, or Small Slave. And finally, uh, there's one by uh, out of, uh, uh, Arab out of Libya, uh, Najwa Ben Shitwan, uh, who wrote The Slave Pens. Now, I'm wanting to know if the brother of Sudan read any of these, these, these pieces, and if not, is he aware of the racism in terms of Arab literature? 
Uh, sorry, can you repeat your question again, please, and uh, speak slowly, because English is the third language uh, I, I learned English in old age. <laughs> Just to speak slowly a little bit so I can understand the question. Sorry. Sure. Let me, let me just ask you this. Are you familiar with racism in Arab literature? Yes, I am. Yes, okay, I am. Could you exp- okay, could, could you expand? Yes. The, the Arab literature is completely against the black man. Even, even, even you can experience that here in the United States. If you go any mosque, not for the nation of Islam, no, the uh, the uh, the people uh, from Middle East and Africa go to any mosque, you will never see a black man leading a prayer. A black man cannot be sheikh. A black man cannot rule Arabs. The literature, the full literature, even the textbook is full of racism against the black. And that is the motivation of killing blacks now. In, in uh, 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 Boko Haram, raging war against the Christian, uh, their brothers, Christian uh, Nigerians. Uh, Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan ruled for 30 years. They rage a war against South Sudanese Christian, a holy war, jihad. The whole Sudan, Muslim Sudan, was raging war jihad against South Sudan since we get independence in 1956. So that tells you racism and hatred is there inside. If it's not there, what makes a black man? Killing a black man by holy war, raging a holy war against the other black man because he became a Muslim and he, he carry, he wear Arab name and he speak Arabic, and that other uh, African, he's a Christian, and he has other names. So it is that uh, this we can we can talk about this specifically. We can talk even about the textbook, and we can discuss the textbook. But uh, the time will not allow us. The racism is there. Uh, the slavery. Today I am speaking to you, the blacks are slaves in Arabia, in Saudi Arabia, in all Arab countries like Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, uh, Emirates, blacks are slaves. Three millions of blacks in south of Iraq, in Basra. They living a miserable life. If you go there, if you see the way Arab lives, their houses, and you see the black slaves, the Arabs took them when they invade uh, Nubia. Millions of blacks, they took them, they are, they are in Basra. Millions of them still in Basra, south of uh, Iraq. I want you African-American activists to visit these places and see how the blacks live. They live in, in a miserable life as a slaves. In Mauritania, until today, Arab sheds, they have thousands of slaves. Saudi royal family, they have slaves. They will deny, but they have. I, be, I was there, and I know, and I speak the language. It's the, the, the racism against uh, blacks is, is documented in every aspect of Arab life. And even uh, uh, they, they, 
they don't allow a black man to lead a prayer in Arabia, in any Arabian country. Okay. Thank Let you. me ask one quick question, Brother Africa, to Brother Bushy, real quickly. Uh, and, and that is that, you know, um, one of the things I find extraordinary, you know, you know recently, Ian Omar talked about the plight of, of Muslims. Uh, often in America, we hear Muslim Americans, uh, Africans, uh, African Americans who practice Islam, talk about the concerns of Muslims as though somehow the problem of other African folks are not relevant. Could you talk a little bit about in terms of that dynamic, in terms of its potential uh, 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 impact on African Union overall? Well, well, my brother, I would say it's the same as possibly the impact of Christianity, where you have just millions of Africans all over the United States who are in total support of the Zionist entity Israel only because they're Christians and Israel is mentioned in the Bible. They do not realize that, like our brother just said, many parts of the Middle East have Africans. One of the first people to die in the Palestinian Revolution against Israel in 1948 was our sister Fatima, who was an African and a Palestinian, an African living in Palestine for over four or 500 years. And this is the case throughout the Middle East. My brother talked about Bosnia, and he's correct. It is an African city. And as you may notice, it was one of the first cities that the U.S. attacked and invaded when they invaded Iraq. Of course, we know this. The mayor of Bosnia uh, met with our brothers, who was part of a delegation that went to Iraq in 1974, right as the Iraq-Iran war was beginning. And they were able to go and meet with the brothers there in Bosnia. So, yes, Africans exist all over the Middle East. And like in many parts of East Africa, they're confused on the question of identity and think that making themselves Arabs make themselves or making themselves Islamic automatically make them Arabs. Just like many people flee from the question of being African in the United States because they're Christian. And their perception of Africa and traditional African religion, which is actually brought about through the interpretation of Christian missionaries, have made them uh, alienated from the question of Africa, from the question of African religion. And so they see themselves, and here again, the identity confusion, as something other than Africans. I think that it is strange that we would say our brothers are killing each other just because they're Christian or Arabic and not looking at the larger picture. 
because yes, it was the United States and NATO who put the reactionary Arabs in power in Libya today. And I cannot blame all Arabs because this happened. I can blame those reactionary Arabs in Libya who are enslaving Africans today. I can blame the Arabs in Mauritania who has been enslaving Africans for years. I cannot look at the Africans in the Sudan and say that they're Arabs. And I cannot say that these Africans who some people would say are Arabs have enslaved the Africans in the Sudan. Now, I I cannot find any basis for that outside of what the Zionist entity of Israel and the church in Canterbury in England has put out. And those are, of course, tainted by their desire to divide and conquer Africa. So the question of identity is extremely important. We have struggled in this country for years over that. At one point when I first came to this country in the 1960s, if you call somebody black, that would be a fight. That would be a physical fight. You can't call me black. I ain't black. They say, well, what are you? And they will then go to, well, I'm part Indian, part this, part French, part this, part Spanish, and all of these absurd concepts. This kind of confusion around the question of identity does not exist just in the United States. It exists all over this hemisphere. Go to the Dominican Republic today who are fighting the Haitians. They will tell you, we're not black. We're not Afro-Dominicans. We're white. But if you look at them, they're just like folks who will tell you because they're Islamic that they're Arabs, even though they're black. They're African. So Albert is correct. The question of identity and the confusion over identity contributes a lot to the major part of our struggle today and our understanding of who we are and who our enemy is. And because of that, our enemy has been able to keep us divided and keep us down. Okay, let's go to Carlo 7000. Carlo 7000. Your question or comment, please. Hello, hello. Yes, Carlo. Um, thank you all for um, this informative, you know, call today. Um, I had a question about the... Uniting Africa as one. Um, I went to a meeting, um, a seminar with Dr. Ashanti Malefi at VCU, and I meant to ask him a question about it. Um, so I'm guess I'm directing this question to him. 
Now, when it comes to making uniting Africa as one, I, I heard a brother mention the unite well African states rather than African countries. So, judging by what has occurred in the United States, and knowing that the the main belief over any type of you know Islam, Christianity, Buddhism. The main belief here in the United States is capitalism. I fear and worry that with uniting Africa as one, instead of appreciating its individual countries and just creating like peace treaties and understanding understanding amongst each country, I fear that that would be uh, that would lead towards yes, a leader may there may be an African leader over top of USA number two in the beginning, but then that also gives someone else of a foreign nation an invader or an invader's son or daughter easy access to control one. Control one continent So I I just wanted to My question would be What is the We speak of the pros Of uniting Africa as one As that USA number two But have we Really Evaluated the cons And the individual Cultures of each country And each tribe within who, who do work hard to preserve their identity, culture, and heritage, would it be generalizing generalizing um, the continent? Would that be, have we, have we really evaluated the cons of that? That's my question. Okay, Carla, can I just paraphrase my understanding of your question? Um, another way as saying that what is the significant and the pro aspects of achieving the, the, the objective of Pan-Africanism and what, if any, are there any yeah. negative aspects of this concept of Pan-Africanism and ask our guests mm-hmm. to um, articulate that position. Brother Van Boshi, you can go first. Yeah, I, I, I would think that my brother should understand that Africa was divided at the Berlin Conference less than, well, a little more than 100 years ago. And at this conference, there was no respect for ethnic ethnicity. There was no respect for really geographical boundaries that were historical. And so... At that conference, Africa was just divided up for what best suited the European colonial powers. We're saying that Africa must be united. and must be united because what it does is it brings all of the resources in Africa coordinated in an effort to protect and ensure the survival and continuation of the African, no matter where he is in the world, and especially in Africa. Now, there's no question that this can be done. 
The question is, how is it done? It can be imposed from the top. The European Union was imposed from the top. And as you can see today, through Brexit, etc., it has fallen apart. African unity cannot be imposed from the top. It must be imposed from the bottom up, which makes it a harder struggle. However, it's a struggle that we can successfully achieve. And once it's achieved, the African, no matter where he is in the world, will be in a different and better perspective. Now, there's many people who have talked about how Africa must unite and why Africa must unite. I would not just sit here and repeat what they say, but I would suggest that you look at Africa on the Move by Seiko Toure. It's a book. Or Africa Must Unite by Kwame Nkrumah. And I would say that these books really lay out what the benefits of a united Africa would be. The drawback is only in the struggle to achieve this. The drawback is in the fight to ensure a unity of Africa that, like you said, is not capitalist. A united Africa must be socialist because there's only two economic systems in the world today, capitalism and socialism. And either you make one up, create one, or you pretend that there's another one, but today there's only two. We're saying that the struggle to unite Africa is one that we are waging right now in terms of our struggle over ideas. This is part and parcel of the struggle to unite Africa. There's many backwards ideas that exist out in the African world that must be struggled against, must be combated, and must be defeated. So don't think that Africa should not unite because it will make it easier for somebody to come and capture Africa. If Africa is united, if each of these over 56 different African armies become one army, I would dare anyone in the world to mess with Africa. I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want... Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Before you make your other comment, let Brother Tantuma, he may want to respond to that okay. question too. Brother Tantuma, well, question before, on. Before he, before he responds to the question, I want to clarify. Um, I'm just asking, are we using the United States of America as an example for uniting Africa? No. Okay. In that, no way, that, no. Okay, that, that, was, that was what had concerned me. Okay. Thank you, bro. Brother Tatuma, your response to that? Yes, yes, brother. Yes. Um yes, I believe we to unite Africa we have to unite in African ideas, not colonial ideas. 
uh, you see now China is a, is a new colonial colonialist to to Africa, and China is a socialist communist system. But when it comes to Africa, they drop that. They treat us as if Africans are no people, are lower than them. So the identity struggle is very important. And then after that, after we build our center, our philosophy, our ideology, our paradigm, after that, we, we can study other ideas. But we cannot build African unity or African liberation on other people's idea. It's got to be on African idea. African experience is African culture is very rich, very rich. But to discover that richness, you have to speak African. You have to learn one of African language and live with the African in the African village with the chiefs, eat with them the way they eat, and then you will come the root of every philosophy people are bringing, bringing uh, colonials are bringing to us. All these philosophies are rooted in African culture, in the language. Language is a dangerous tool, brothers. That's why we denied in Sudan to learn and teach African, our own African languages. I'm now 57 years old, I learned how to read and write Nubian, Nubian language here in the United States of America. One teacher uh, is being uh, persecuted and being uh, tortured in Sudan. Uh, he was teaching Nubian language in a secret society. He, he managed to escape and came to California. And from there, I begged him to come to Washington, D.C., and we opened classes. Now I read and write. And this teacher, he now have a class online with African-American professors. And if there is a plan to teach to open a class in Mulefe Asante Institute of Afrocentricity, we will teach there. The teacher will teach in Nubin there too. And he already started teaching online. So it's the, the danger of language. You cannot develop a culture, a philosophy, a, 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 a identity without your language. You can. The English language, Arabic language will not take us nowhere because there is no seeds of Africa in these languages. African seeds only exist in African languages. And that's why uh, you know uh, the, the linguists they divide the languages, Asian languages, European languages, and African languages. Our seed, our idea, our philosophy is in our language, and we will build Africa and unite Africa in our idea, in our experience. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your question or comment, please. Uh, I think you're a very knowledgeable, uh, distinguished guest tonight. Uh, I'm very impressed. And uh, I think, you know, the problems of Africa are uh, 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 rooted in imperialism and in colonialism, and the solution is an anti-imperialist, anti 
ideology. And um, I uh, I don't know that I have any questions right now. Uh, I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, on that note, what we're going to do right now, we'll continue discussion, understand Africa, its reality, and issues. When we come back from the station break. If you have any comments, questions, please call in at one three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. And remember, Africa on the Move is a weekly program under the banner of the African Awareness Association. We're here to deal with issues and concerns that are impacting our communities, and we're here to speak truth to power. We want to give you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. So we're going to take our station break. When we come back, we'll continue discussion. Yeah, listen to Africa on the Move. Yeah. 
continents, you're an African man and African women, you're African. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We're discussing this very important issue and topic. The theme tonight is understanding Africa, its reality and issues. At this point in time, one of the things when you look at Africa, uh, to my panelists, um, there is this, this this narrative that Africa is indebted. And so right now, I think recently I've looking at some numbers where they, they are making claim that Africa owes $350 billion um, to the Western nations. $350 billion in terms of this question of debt. And we know debt is one of the major issues that is undermining the growth and development with Africa with the understanding that Africa is functioning under an imperialist capitalist system. My question to my panelists is, should Africa pay back any debt, understanding the historical legacy of slavery, this whole question how Africa has been robbed, African labor has been stolen, African intelligence, ingenuity have been taken. So what kind of debt does Africa owe Western, the Western world? Your response, Brother Bamboshi? Yeah, uh, the great Fidel Castro said the debt cannot be paid. I would go further and say the debt should not be paid, period. I think that Africa is old. <clears throat> Africa is old by the Western world for everything. I think if they just begin by bringing back the stolen treasures that they took from Africa, you will see how much they really, really stole. I think that this is a question that's really a non-starter. And it's a question that many people miss when they talk about uh, stuff like Chinese imperialism in Africa. There's no Chinese imperialism in Africa. The reality is that China has more people, more population than most other countries except India, which is closely catching up with China. And Many people in East Africa should know that there is a number of Indians in East Africa and a number of Chinese. There's Chinese in West Africa. I lived in the village of Dalaba in Guinea, and right up the hill from me was a little old Chinese couple. And this old Chinese couple spoke African languages better than I did. So just speaking African language alone does not contribute to our independence. I saw Sekature went to Korea. And in this video of his trip to Korea, there were Koreans lying in the street, hollering Sekature, Sekature. And then they had a dinner for him in this big hall. And they had and Koreans who were singing in Guinean language. And if you didn't look up and see that it was Koreans, you would think it was Guineans. 
So here again, the reality is that China is all over Africa because it has a population that it can send out all over the world. But China does not have AFRICOM. China does not have drone bases in Chad. China China does not have drone bases in uh, Djibouti. And if we're talking about how do we ensure that Africa become free enough to unite, then we must talk about AFRICOM and their role in Africa. AFRICOM claims that they're fighting terrorism, but who is the terrorists? The people who wants to unite Africa? Today they might be fighting the same forces of Islam that they put in power in Libya and tried to put in power in uh, Mali. But here again, African is our biggest enemy, and we're being confused. We're saying AFRICOM is okay, but we must get rid of China. Most of the loans that China has given to Africa is for infrastructure development. Most of the loans that U.S., through the International Monetary Fund, etc., have given to Africa is to buy stuff from the United States. It's a difference. And of course, there's neocolonialism that's benefited and pocketing this money from both China and the United States, leaving the debt on the people of Africa. Again, we say that there's a need for a ideological struggle, a struggle over ideas, and a need for organization so that Africa can properly take its place among other nations of the world. Until then, we cannot complain about anything. If we're not willing to fight imperialism and capitalism in Africa, if we think imperialism and capitalism in Africa is the same as socialism, then we can see where confusion runs rampant. Gentlemen, does yeah. Africa does Africa yes. have a, they need to pay the West? What's your position on that? No, Africa should not pay the, the West or anywhere because uh, Africa is being looted, Africa is being destructed. Uh, Africa should not uh, pay any anybody. But uh, uh, imperialism, imperialism. Let us talk about imperialism. What about the Arab imperialism in the East Africa and North Africa? North Africa is completely, they are not Arab, but they, they are Arabized. They have other identities. But the Arab imperialism is capturing North Africa and East Africa, and nobody talks about it. Let us say about what happened this these uh, other countries who have other methods and other ideas completely different than Africans. In 1964, Soviet Union destroyed the state of Nubia in Egypt by building a high dam 
destroying a black civilization, a peak of black civilization. It's built by Soviet Union, and they came to Egypt, dictator Nazir of Egypt, first came to United States. For some reasons, the United States refused to build the dam for Nazir, and he went to the Soviet. And they give him advice that Nubia will be a danger for the Arab nationalist, Arab nationalism. So it, the, it, the advice was remove the Nubian from their land thousand miles away, scatter them over the country in Egypt and Sudan, and that's what happened. The Soviet Union never thought about Nubia. Never, they know the history, but they know that that movement was a, a knife in the heart of Africa. That is, is stole is stealing Nubia from Africa. That action, the same way they stole Egypt from Africa, and that's happened by Soviet Union. We have. We have scars in our hearts. We know the ideas. Other ideas take us nowhere. We we don't need any outside power in Africa. Western, Eastern, any kind of power, any kind of colonial existence we don't want. But we are talking what we are facing today. Today, Af they are destroying Africa, dismantling Africa, and we have to discuss these issues clearly. So okay. the ideas... Yes, go ahead. Go ahead, brother. Finish your point. Yes. Finish your the point, ideas... brother. Yeah, yeah. The ideas we develop Africa is only African idea. And when I talk about language, I never say you can go back to record. I never say speaking African language will solve the problem. I didn't say that. My point was about the language, how to build ideology or paradigm or idea or philosophy of Africa so we can unite Africa. I said this is seeded and deep-rooted in the African language. And this, I quote this from late uh, Dr. Sheikh Antadiop, the best man uh, wrote about Africa in Africa itself. Thank you. Thank you, panelists. What we're going to do right now, we're going to ask each one of y'all to give a summation on your final thoughts on the subject, understand Africa, its reality and issues. Brother Bambuchi, you'll find the thoughts on this issue. Yeah, I, um, I, I think that uh, maybe I was not clear. I think that specifically what I'm saying is that for Africa, those reactionary Arab forces that exist in North Africa today are placed in power by the United States. They're financed by the United States. They're armed by the United States. And they do the bidding of the United States. And so 
our major enemy in Africa today is not necessarily the pawns, but it's the United States. I'm saying that Africa has to be united. It has to be united under an all-African socialist government. And let me be clear. When we say socialism, we see socialism as a science. And like any other science, we wouldn't say that the man who observed gravity, invented gravity, or owns gravity. All we can say is the that he observed it and wrote it down. And it's the same with socialism. Socialism looks at society. It says, if this group of people is oppressed by that group of people, then eventually this group of people will rise up against that group of people and overthrow them. It's a science. There's nothing subjective about it. Socialism does not belong to any one people, any one country, any one government. So, therefore, we're saying that based on the fact today that there are only two economic systems that exist, if you consider yourself as a person willing to build a political structure, a political formation, a political party, if you will, and seize power in the benefit of the people, then there, there's only two forms of or two reasons why you would build this political party. Either you would build this party to operate under a system called capitalism, or you would build this party to operate under a system called socialism. We choose to build this party to operate under a system called socialism. We're clear on what capitalism has done. We know the antecedent of capitalism is slavery. We know the antecedent of socialism is communalism. And Africa gave communalism to the world. So therefore, we're not confused. We're saying that Africa has had problems in the past. Africa has been betrayed by both the left and the right. However, Africa will only take its rightful place when the African take control of our lives and our situation and move us forward. And the best way to do that is under a united Africa, Africa united, not on the capitalism, but on the socialism. So thank you. Thank you, Brother Bill Bridger, for your contribution to today's program. Now, Brother Tuntamo, we're going to give you your final thoughts, your final thoughts for tonight. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just want to uh, make clear that I'm very conscious about the African system and about socialism and capitalism, all this we know. And Africa built its civilization based on uh, social, uh, social systems, socialism. 
that that is very uh, uh, clear is no 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 any cloud uh, about that but it is not mean what comes from out is a science and ours is not science a science a socialist sci- scientist they put it africa is out of history they didn't study African system, African economic system, because Africa is out of history. I can't take that as a science. That is not science. That's ideology. And ideology is rooted to a society. So we know African system. I grew in Africa, and I, was, I said in the beginning, in the village when we farm, today we farm to our neighbor, and tomorrow we farm my my field, and next day to the other neighbor. And in the harvest, same thing. All village, collective society. We are aware of our system, and we just discussing how to gather all this philosophy and build a political system to unite Africa. But I will never buy Africa is out of history. Africa is the dawn of civilization of the human. Africa have a political system and economical system and built on those systems, Africa built the first dawn of the civilization, civilization of the Nile Valley. Nubian civilization and Egypt civilization, they are African civilization and built by Africans and we are aware of African economical system and we lived in in the system and we produce it until I came to the United States. So we know our system. We have no confusion. But I don't take people who look us down. Whatever he come from, from Europe, from China, from Mecca, that it doesn't make me any reason to respect as a science. That is not science. That's ideology. Thank you very much. Brother Tadema, we thank you for your contribution to today's program. Please stay on and we can go to our one of our participants for the day. We can go to Carlo seven zero zero. Your final thoughts for the night, Carlo seven zero zero zero. Um thank you. I, I really believe that um you know socialism is an ideology as well. Um, um, I wanted to address the brother from Sudan. He spoke about problems. Well, everyone spoke about problems with identity. Now, problems with identity, we take on European identity, um, Arabic identities, um, and so forth. Now, one identity that I believe the continent that we refer to as Africa has taken on was Africa. Now, after doing some research, they were speaking in reference to the Romans named it Africa. However, I rarely see that being an issue or being brought up which that would be considered a Roman identity. So my question would be, if we're going to address 
identities like Sudan, like the brother mentioned, Sudan was named by, was a label put on, the original name was Nubian or Nubia, and they named it Sudan. Are we going to go back to what it was originally, the original, you know, labels, or are we still going to carry on the legacy of others' ideologies? Um, that's 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 what I would like to know. Are we are we going to do it full out, or are we going to do it halfway? If we know these facts, are we going to make them stick? How are we going to do that, and how do we plan All on right. doing? Carl, I let both of the guests quickly address the the concern that you raised. Was Tuttleman first? He raised the issue of whether not the word Africa is indigenous to African languages or people. Yes, 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 brother. Uh, yes, we we are educating ourselves and our people about identity, and there is a debate big debate going on because we've been oppressed for so long. We, in East Africa, we've been oppressed, we've been slaved, we've been completely, our culture, our language has been destroyed. We became confused. I'm talking about in East Africa, specifically in Sudan. We are re-educating ourselves and our people. And that's our goal, to go to our identity to claim our identity. We can't claim Nubia if we don't claim our history, our language, our production system. Everything belongs to us. We have to reclaim it. And from there, we build our unity based on our experience, African experience, not on other, other experience. I don't call that science. And I, I'm not... I'm not talking against any any idea or ideology, but I am pointing that only the way to build rebuild Africa, to reunite unite Africa, is gotta be on African idea, African experience. It's not only in in the in the college campus we can get that. We have to study the society. We have to live the society. That is what I mean. Studying the language is very important because it has a lot of a lot of elements of identity and the history and it answers a lot of arguments in the history and in the in the archaeological science. Archaeology science. So African ideas it's language, history, the way of living, the way of producing. There is a system. Other, other civilizations said Africa have no production system. They didn't study it. But that's not true. Africa is the, the one who brought the first civilization. Africa, the, all the science come from Africa. Philosophy, chemistry, physics, medicine, everything comes from Africa. How come we don't have production systems, philosophical systems, and we did all that? Our ancestors did all that. No, we have to come back to ourselves, and we have to stick to ourselves. We have to reposition ourselves. When I talk, we, I'm talking about the people of Sudan, because there is a lot of confusion there. And 
before I leave uh, this panel, please, I, I ask you to go to Sudan thrice and go to the, uh, put your voice, support people of Sudan, because we, from uh, 30 years ago, we struggled to remove a dictatorship, a Muslim Brotherhood dictatorship. Now we have other dictators by Arab countries, by Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, Arab Republic of Egypt. Egypt is completely Arabized. So they are destroying Nubia, Africa, Sudan. This is, this is an icon of Africa, Nubia. If, if, they, if they stole Nubia from Africa, what is left for Africa to claim? This is what I'm talking about. To build Africa, to unite Africa, it's got to be on African idea, not on the colonial ideas. Thank, Thank you. you, my brother. Brother Elbosha, your response to this question of using the, the name Africa and seeing it as a a name that outside of the history and culture of being African. So, my my brother, I think that needs to be researched, and definitely we need to figure out what it should properly be, if something else. However. I would like to just mention that currently most uh, language colleges would accept that there are approximately seven uh, language families in Africa, but because of our great creativity, etc., these seven families, language families, have produced between 1,500 and 2,000 different variations of those seven languages. So when you talk about African languages, you're talking about a lot, and we must come to look for a common language. And at this point, unless we're organized, we don't know what it would be. We can hope it would be this language versus that language, etc. But we must organize. We must build a United States of Africa. I agree with my brother that the struggle against those problems that he's having in the Sudan, in Nubia, is based on Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is a puppet state of the United States, which means the struggle in Sudan is the struggle against U.S. imperialism today. It is the same struggle that we have all over Africa. That's why Sudan must unite with the other countries in Africa and create a United States of Africa. And I thank my brother for participating, and I thank him for at least struggling over ideas and not making it personal. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you, Brother Ben Borsche. Final thoughts, Brother Moses. Final thoughts, Brother Well, um, it's been interesting. Um, I want to thank the, the the guests for coming on and sharing their knowledge on on this in this area, and uh, I look forward to more insights. Thank you. Thank you. 
Brother Haki, final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, I I think you know the struggle <clears throat> the struggle for Africa is really <clears throat> excuse me the struggle of Africa is really intensifying, and I think it's such Africa also has intensified its struggle to free itself. Um, one thing is very very clear: uh, it's not going to free itself simply you know by um, you know wishful thinking. It's going to take considerable effort in terms of strategy and tactic in terms of achieving that. And more importantly, we have, Africa has to identify precisely who the enemy is. Until then, I got a sneaking suspicion that his ability in terms of coming together becomes very, very difficult because there are so many African puppets who are musicians and leadership in Africa who are in opposition to identifying who the proper enemy is. So we have to identify who those enemies are, and in, 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 in terms of assisting that process, Africans throughout the diaspora have to do all that they can in their power to ensure that they push the, the necessity in terms of African unity you know, as a means to African empowerment. And having said that, Brother Africa, I'm just going to say good night, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And we now we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that um, Pan-Africanism must be achieved from the bottom up. It must, uh, it must be built among the masses of African people. Africa has historically been divided into many ethnic groups. Each of these ethnic groups had a name for their land. So Africa's been known by many names throughout its history. But the most common name by which it is known presently is Africa. And uh, once we're organized and united and we've gained our freedom, we can choose to call Africa whatever we want to call it in whatever language, language or languages we choose to speak. But for right now, we must work for the achievement of Pan-Africanism. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. And to all of our guests and participants and our listening audience, we always thank you for your participation and listen to our programs on a weekly basis. We'd like to hear your views and your comments on our programs by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMove, the number two at gmail.com. If you'd like to have a copy of this program, of the past program, just email us. We want to help you to send your links to all of our past programs. At this particular time, what we're going to do is we're going to show our African personality by paying a tribute and memories of the ongoing struggle of our Palestinian brothers and sisters in Palestine. But more importantly, we start out this program in recognizing the birthday of Brother Kwame Ture, which was June the 29th. He was born in 1941. We're going to recognize his birthday by leaving you some lessons that we must learn that he has shared with us earlier as it relates to the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So we're going to go to Palestine, and then we're going to bring you Brother Kwame Ture. That's the best way we can carry on his legacy. It's not only learning the lessons that he had left for us, but implementing them. So we thank you again for listening to Africa on the Move. We'll see you this time next week, same time, same station. And remember, Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all African free. We now take you to Palestine. Then we're gonna bring you Brother Kwame Ture. Please stay tuned.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine. needs her We thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour and... Uh, Within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and its relationships of the 80s and relevance of the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60s and gain is the understanding that The statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. 
The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. 
Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. 
students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. 
Thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spot these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the basis of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. 
We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the era? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interest as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. 
Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you would see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. 
Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. Of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. 
We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Thank you.